6 to 10, and 1 Samuel 14, verses 6 to 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And from 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Let's pray for Jim. Father, I thank you for Jim. I thank you that I know that he seeks you. I know that he set himself apart to seek you before delivering this word. And we bless him for his diligence, for his earnestness, to be close to you. As he has drawn close to you, I know you drew close to him. Thank you, Lord, that you've inspired him for this word today. And we pray that even now, as he delivers the word, you will continue to inspire him and that he will deliver your pure word to us, your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Feel more comfortable here than I do the piano, actually. Now, I was so inspired last week by Pastor James introducing Pastor Ramazan that I asked to be introduced today. Unfortunately, nobody was willing to do it. It's okay, I wrote my own introduction. No, I didn't really. I'm Jim. What's your name? I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled, in fact, and consider it quite an honor to be in the pulpit and to bring the word and a huge responsibility. I don't take it lightly. Everybody who steps up here has to know that we answer to God for the things that we say. So how many of you are ready for an anointed and powerful message today? Yeah. Well, make sure you come next week, too, because Daniel's (laughs) preaching next week. And I guarantee that one will be anointed and powerful. Today, you get, you get me. And I did have a message prepared for today. And about a week ago, when I was putting it down and getting ready to preach it, the Lord changed directions for what I'm going to be sharing. And I really believe I've got so much to say that it can't be said in one sermon. So I've decided I'm going to start a series. 
Unfortunately, I'm only asked to preach once a year, so my series will end roughly in 2025, <laughs> probably in June. Mark it on your calendar. It's... Jackson, you did a great job with that last sermon, last series of sermons, and they spoke to me. And you know how I know that they spoke to me is because after I walk away, I remember what you talk about, what you had talked about. And there are things that the Holy Spirit still brings up. That's how you know that God is at work. So, Lord, I commit this time into your hands. Commit this message to you, Holy Spirit. Freely move here today and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a unique opportunity today to be on the worship team and to be preaching And what that meant was I brought my computer with my PowerPoint slides and didn't turn it on until we're almost ready for the, for the service to begin. So I don't know how we're doing over there, if we have it or not, but. There's a sermon right there. You see, (laughs) it preaches itself, doesn't it? When you're not plugged in. Either way, it's not going to stop me from preaching. So my message today is titled, Living in the Power of God's Grace. And I want to dovetail the two beautiful passages of Scripture that Vic so beautifully read to us this morning. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. We're going to be looking at James chapter 4 and 1 Samuel 14. Now, the three... Great religions of the world, if you want to call them that, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, they share a number of teachings in common. You know that? We share a number of teachings in common. God the Creator, Adam and Eve, sin, heaven and hell, right? We share all these things in common. But how many of you know that there are some pretty significant differences between Christianity and the other religions of the world? I can't think of anything more on the forefront than the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And that's kind of what defines, not kind of, that's definitely what defines Christianity. Was he a good man and a prophet? Or was he the Son of God, God incarnate? Another area that distinguishes Christianity is grace. I remember when I was walking Millefair, through the Bible, this was a, a lady I would eventually marry who went to be with the Lord two years ago. But as I was showing her, I wasn't trying to convince her that her belief system was wrong. I was simply showing her what Jesus said about himself in the Bible. And as I began to talk about grace, it was just hard for her to understand. And her response, her question, without having read what Paul experienced 2,000 years ago was, So if we live by grace, if you live by grace as Christians, you can act however you want, right? Doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't Paul address that question? And what was his answer to that? May it never be. That's right. That's not what grace is about. But grace defines Christianity. It's so simple a child can understand it, and yet it's really a a difficult thing for some people to accept. But it's as easy as believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's as easy as confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. 
It's by grace through faith that we're saved. So my message is living in the power of God's grace. And I want to bring three encouragements to you today. The first one is God gives grace. Can you say God gives grace? The second is God gives more grace. Pay attention to the third one. It's a long one. You ready? It's up to us to walk in the power of God's grace. You are in tune today. All right. I love it. Grace has been called. I've heard grace called God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. Judaism that preceded the message of the cross was based on the law. And the religions that followed Christianity are also based on works. Christianity is unique in that there's nothing that you do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to merit God's favor. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace, saved by grace through faith. Nothing we can do to contribute other than to believe and to receive it. Now, those of you who have come from other countries, and maybe from the West especially, you understand that Westerners have a stereotype of what a Muslim is, what Turks are like. And likewise, I learned when I came here to Turkey that Turks have a stereotype of what Westerners are like. I learned that when I was teaching at a school and undoubtedly the first Christian these kids had ever encountered, most of them anyhow, and I learned quickly that their idea of Christianity was from what they saw in Hollywood. And Lord help us if that's what Christianity is. One teacher very seriously asked me, you, you have a house in America? I said, I do. He said, if I were to walk onto your property, would you shoot me? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no, no. Why would you think I would shoot you? I'm wondering, what did he watch? But he's thinking, you know, maybe he's thinking the Texas Republic or something where everybody's toting guns over there. But I'm from the north. We don't. Uh... All right, we do, too, in the north. But. <laughs> No, no, I'm not going to shoot you. No. Very interesting. But preconceived ideas. Now, if you want to discover what's true about God, then you should seek what's true. You should seek truth, and it's our responsibility. It's every person's responsibility to seek out what's true and follow that way. In fact, that was my admonition to Nilefer. I said, don't, don't follow Jesus because I'm asking you to. I said, I'm presenting this. If it's true, follow it. If you believe that another way is true, follow that. You have to follow what you believe in your heart to be true. That doesn't change truth, by the way. It doesn't change what's true. But each person has to be convinced in their own heart and follow that way. That's how it should be done. But let's be honest. People watch. And people observe. And they say, if that's a whatever, is that what I want to be? Don't you know that that's true? How many of you have heard people say, I would never be a Christian because there are too many Christians who have done this and that, right? 
No, that never works for sports teams, does it? No, never. No, you're a diehard sports fan. You follow your team, and it doesn't matter how obnoxious the fans are. They can be spilling beer on you and yelling and all kinds of obnoxious things, and you never say, I'll never follow that team again. The fans are just rude. No, you don't do that. But we seem to do it with religion. So then what I begin to wonder is, Would somebody want to become a Christian because they're watching your life and my life? You know that there are a lot of people in this country today who are undecided about what they believe. And I would dare say increasingly so. I'm finding more and more who like this category called deism. It's become very comfortable here. Have you encountered that as well? Believe there is a God. I know there's a God. I just don't want to commit to which one. It's a little bit lazy, honestly, if you ask me. But nevertheless, if they're on the fence like that, don't you think they're watching? Don't you think maybe the reason they got onto that fence was because they were watching and weren't happy with the camp they were in? If they're watching your life and my life, my question is, why would they want to become a Christian? Are we giving them reason to or not? I suggest that we need to reflect Jesus and how we live. Our lives have been changed, then we need to outlove others, we need to outserve others, we need to outforgive others because it's not our effort. If the spirit of the living God is dwelling in us and filling us, our lives need to reflect that. I'm getting ahead of myself, but In the church, we tend to look at the biggies. We tend to look at the big sins, the noticeable ones. And we tend to wink at the smaller ones. But that's not God's economy. God looks straight into the heart. Easiest thing in the world, it's letting the Holy Spirit do His work in us, right? Yeah, easiest thing. All right. Jesus didn't come to give us just eternal life. He didn't come just to save us from the power, from the penalty of hell, which we all deserve. There's a lot of reasons he came, but one passage that I particularly like is that he said, I came that you might have life and have it in abundance, have it to the full. That's how he wants us to live our lives. And that doesn't mean, oh boy, I get to do whatever I want now because Jesus wants me to have a full and abundant life. Well, good luck with that one. Because that'll leave you empty. That'll leave you in a a dead end. All right, James chapter 4. Let's get there. It's a wonderful but difficult book. Brother of Jesus and one of the early church leaders is writing to a Jewish audience that's been scattered due to persecution. They're no longer concentrated in Jerusalem or even in Israel. They're living in Africa, Rome, Greece. Many are in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. It's Turkey now. You know that, right? He begins by telling his brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Put on the brakes there. Count it all joy when you receive trials of various kinds. Not endure, not make it through, but count it all joy when you receive trials of various kinds. 
He talks about being doers and not just hearers of the word. And how faith without works is dead. He talks about taming the tongue and the sin of partiality. He talks about what true religion is. True religion, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How many times have the words escaped from my lips? I don't consider myself religious. I'm a follower of Jesus. But if I'm following true religion, this would define me. This is true religion. Not the form and the fanciness, not all of that, not the show, but true religion. Then in chapter 4, he addresses the cause of worldliness and the problems that are happening in the lives of the believers. So James chapter 4, good thing I brought the hard copy book here. I don't know, Jackson, it's hard for me to preach without this one in my hands. Jackson's quiet because he, uh, he's more modern than I am. You preach from, a, you preach from an e-copy? Yeah. It's much more convenient, but when that's not working. All right. James chapter 4, I want to read verses 1 through 5. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In verse 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. They're problems that the early church is facing. They're not just personal problems, they're corporate problems. Did you read that list? Were you listening to that list? They're problems in the early church. It's not like Pentecost came and everybody was doing great after that. Pentecost came and people had problems because people have problems. Becoming a Christian doesn't make your problems go away, does it? Verses 6 through 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I won't keep reading it, but this is what Vic already read to us, and it's in the bulletin this morning. As we read scripture, it's important to know if what we're reading is a command, a promise, or a truth. Because what do you do with a command? Obey it. What do you do with a promise? Keep it. Hope, yes. Claim it. What do you do with the truth? Simply believe it. Do you have to obey a truth? There's nothing to obey. It's a truth, right? As you look at James, what is he saying to us? A truth, he gives more grace. A truth, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. A command, submit yourself, therefore, to God. A command, resist the devil, and a promise, and he will flee from you. Another command, come near to God, and a promise, and he will come near to you. Now a series of commands, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and change your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and promise, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. So first, God gives grace, and this is the grace unto salvation. It isn't by anything we've done. It's unmerited favor, and all believers have received this grace. 
Secondly, God gives more grace. How can God give more grace? James just said it, but he gives more grace. Are some people more saved than others? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? Sometimes I feel that way and feel more saved than other times. No, it's not a matter of grace and a salvation. His grace is enough. Then why would he give more grace? I'm glad you asked. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by grace. But if we're truly followers of Jesus, does it simply mean that we're sinners saved by grace or that we're saints who occasionally sin? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Are we being real about the struggles we're facing? Is church a place where we're acting like we have it all together? When a person chooses to follow Jesus, the problems don't all go away. The thief on the cross received Jesus, and he still died on the cross, didn't he? Followers of Jesus in the first century and around the world today are facing death and imprisonment for following him. And many followers of Jesus are not living in freedom, but in spiritual bondage to various sins. He who the Son sets free is free indeed, but if we choose to live in the bondage, that's a choice we have to make. That's not what God wants. That's not what we have to do. But if you think that you can... Getting ahead of myself, I'm going to hold on here. Part two of my series would be what freedom means. That's what part two would be, talking about what it means to be free in Christ. Because when sin goes unchecked, it's not just a matter of, I'm still living free in Christ. When sin goes unchecked, it continues a downward trend until the point that we're in bondage to that sin. What does bondage to sin mean? It means we're not free. Is it possible for Christians to be in bondage to sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Read Romans 6 and 7 and listen to what Paul says. He says, don't be a slave to sin. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to followers of Jesus. God gives more grace. Money problems. Relationship problems. Failing in the battle with sin, living in bondage. Yet the grace I'm talking about here isn't the grace of God that leads to salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, this message is especially for you. Are you walking in the victory that Jesus provided for you? Do you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? means that you follow him. That wasn't tricky, was it? To be a follower of Jesus means that you actually follow him. That's why I've gotten away from the term being a Christian, because it's almost a label. I became one of those from one of these. And I know that we are Christians when we follow Jesus, but a follower says directly an active thing that we have to do in following him. James writes about God giving more grace. Maybe if we use the word favor instead of grace, it would sound better. There are 
a number of people in the Bible that I read about who were given grace or more grace. First one that I read about is Noah. God was about to destroy the world, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Joseph sold as a slave into Egypt, but he finds favor first with Potiphar and then with Pharaoh. This didn't happen quickly, did it? Daniel found favor with Nebuchadnezzar's officials. Stephen, it says, was full of grace and power and doing great wonders and signs. Stephen was full of grace and power. Full of grace and power. Either you have grace or you don't. How can you be full or... or He was full of grace and power. It says it in the book of Acts. Jesus came from the Father. How? Full of grace and truth. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how are we saved? By by grace. But there's another aspect to grace or God's favor, and I think it would be presumptuous of us to take Scripture like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Right? You know the verse? Plans to prosper you and not for harm, to give you hope in a future without understanding that we have a part to play before God declares himself for us and not against us. What Jeremiah declared was at the end of 70 years of captivity, the people were taken away because of their sin and their idolatry. And they had 70 years of cleansing. They had a 70-year time out, is what they had. And then Jeremiah gives them the assurance that God is for you, not against you, because their hearts had turned back to him. I become concerned when people use that too quickly. Because it's predicated upon seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. God gives grace. God gives more grace. I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln, president during America's Civil War. And he was asked by somebody, Mr. President, is God on our side? Keep in mind, You have leaders from the north and the south who are praying to the same God, who are reading the same Bible, who are asking for God's favor and victory. And Mr. Lincoln was asked, is God on our side? And his answer was spot on. Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. That's what it's about. If we were more concerned about making sure that we're on God's side rather than God being on our side, then God will be on our side. All right. He gives grace. He gives more grace. It's up to us to walk in the power of God's grace. Now here we're going to look at 1 Samuel 14. We find Jonathan and his armor bearer going to confront the Philistine armor, uh, Philistine army. Jonathan, you remember, is the son of King Saul, that's right, and also David's best friend. Jonathan was an amazing man, and this story has to be my favorite story about him. Because while Saul and his army is over there, Saul's making some rash vow and trying to find God's favor. His heart's already turning away from God. His son Jonathan and his armor bearer are walking together. They see the Philistines encamped up there, and Jonathan says, hey, you know what? Why don't we go up and take on the Philistine army, just just you and me. 
I don't know about you, but I don't like those odds. You and me against an army? I wonder what his armor bearer was really feeling inside. We know what he says, but I wonder what he was really thinking. Jonathan, I've been with you for a long time. Are you sure about this one? He says, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He doesn't even call them Philistines. He's, he's getting personal here. All right? They are not the chosen ones. They don't have the mark of God on them. They're not the one on whom God's favor rests. And Jonathan calls them out for it. Let's go over there. But let's not be foolish about it. Let's lay out a fleece. How many of you lay out fleeces from time to time? I go back a couple years and I was facing a big decision and I don't really know how to do fleeces that well. And this was evidence of it. But I'm walking along and saying, Lord, I really need an answer for what to do. I've got two choices in front of me. So I don't know. As I'm walking, Lord, if I find something, if I find some money on the ground, then I'll know that, yes, you're saying the answer is yes. And I'm like, money? That's not very specific. You could, you could find any kind of money. Let me be more specific. Lord, let me find a, a 50 lira, no, a hundred, 200 lira note, Lord. If I find a 200 lira note, I'll give it away, Lord. It's not about the money. But if I find a 200 lira note on the ground, then I'll know that the answer is yes, I'm supposed to do this. And I'm thinking, this is really stupid. Who does this? So I'm like, who's going to find a 200 lira note? Lord, if I find something of value, all right, if I find something of va- I'll make it easy for you, God, just something of value. And I'm like, I don't like this fleece thing. I'm not good at it. And God spoke to me right then and said, you want something of value? And then he brought me back to the service on the Sunday before and a powerful worship time. And the words to one of the songs just hit me right between the eyes. And he said, I am with you. I'm living inside of you. You've got something of more value than anything you could find on the ground. I'm going to give you the right direction. I'm not saying don't do fleeces, but don't do them my way. They're terrible. It's a terrible idea. Some of you need to write a book on fleeces. But Jonathan knew what to do. He says, let's go over to the garrison, and it may be that the Lord will work for us. And the word for Lord here is what? What word is he using for Lord? Yahweh. He's using Yahweh. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. Lays out a fleece, and he says, if they say, Stay there, we'll come to you, then we're not supposed to go. But if they say, come on over here, then we're supposed to go and God will give us victory. That's a fleece. A few observations about Jonathan. One, he makes a bold statement about the Philistines. They're not the chosen ones. Two, he didn't seem to know God's will in the matter. He didn't say, God has spoken, this is what's going to happen. He said, I'm not sure, but let's lay out the fleece and God will let us know. Thirdly, He understood God's ability to save. He said, Yahweh can save with many or he can save with a few. Maybe my dad's army is the way that God's going to save and he's going to come and destroy them. But maybe it's just the two of us. But to God, it doesn't really matter, Mr. Armor Bearer. Yahweh can save by many or by few. He's not constrained. And fourthly, 
It's not stated in the passage, but I believe that Jonathan is looking for God's favor. He was willing and wanted to walk in the power of God's grace. I can see it. His armor bearer, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. His armor bearer was supporting him completely. He trusted Jonathan. And let me just take a side note here. We all need an armor bearer. And we all need to be an armor bearer to somebody. We're not intended to do this alone. Well, I didn't get a lot of response. Amen. All right, thank you. And Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to them. If they say, Come up to us, we'll go. And sure enough, they say, Come on over here. We'll show you a thing or two. So Jonathan says, That's it. That's our cue. Let's go. Let's get this done. And he and his armor bear go up, and they immediately slay about 20 men, which is pretty impressive. Two kill 20. You like those odds? God just turns the odds. But then God says, I got the rest from here, Jonathan. You guys must be pretty tired after all that climbing and killing 20 men. And God simply causes confusion in the camp, and the Philistines start killing themselves. Two Philistines sitting up. Ah, it's Jonathan. Ah, why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. God caused confusion in their camp. This is how God works. Odds, schmods. He says, I am the God of all things. I can do anything. And Jonathan was walking in God's favor. What's the secret to living in the power of God's grace? We're going to end where we started in James chapter 4. If we submit to God, if we submit to God and resist the devil, if we draw near to God, If we humble ourselves before the Lord, the devil will flee. God will draw near and he will exalt us. It sounds like more grace to me. And it sounds like one who's walking in the power of God's grace, like Jonathan was. There are three questions that the Lord has been burning in my heart for some time now. And the first question is this. How deep do I want to go? How deep do I want to go? The second, how free do I want to be? How free do I want to be? And the third question, how much favor do I want from God? How deep do I want to go in my relationship with Jesus? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31. He's talking to those, to the Jews who had believed him. This isn't just the disciples, and it's not the Pharisees in the group that didn't believe. He's talking to those who believed him. And here's what he says. If you abide in my word, and my word abides in you, Then you're truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. That is what it means to go deeper with him, to abide in his word. Folks, we want shortcuts. We want seven easy steps. We want to pick up the book that says seven easy steps to walking in God's grace. Or three steps. Don't make it seven. Seven's too many. Let's make it three steps. There's got to be three steps to finding God's grace and favor. There aren't. 
There's no substitute. I go back to when I was a teenager and happily living as a, not only a teenager, but I, I wasn't doing stupid things. In fact, God only needed a little bit of grace to save me, I was convinced, because I didn't do that much wrong. I, was, I invited Jesus into my heart when I was five. How much, how much forgiveness did I actually need, right? I'm speaking sarcastically here. Of course, I needed every bit of grace. And I was happily living my life, making right decisions, not doing stupid things. None of the biggies, right? It's the biggies that you look for. And this pesky preacher came to our church by the name of Dick Eastman. He was formerly our youth pastor, and he came as an evangelist, a prayer evangelist. And he goes and says these words that we should be praying an hour a day. And I'm like, oh, I hate this. An hour? you got to be kidding. Five minutes, you said. I think he said five. I know you said an hour, but you meant five minutes, right? Because an hour a day, are you kidding me? I mean, does it, does it count praying over the food? Because I could probably extend that another minute or two. But an hour a day, how do you do that? Who does that? I'm not a monk living in the mountains of Tibet or something. Come on, I'm a teenage guy. Nobody prays an hour a day. And the more I complained, the more God said, did you have something to say to me? Because I'm speaking to you right now. Well, Dick Eastman doesn't leave you with, go pray an hour a day. Good luck, you know, because, uh, yeah, Lord, okay. He broke it up into 12 steps. 12 steps that include praise. And if you do these 12 things for five minutes, you've gone through an hour, by the way. Can you praise God for five minutes? Oh, what if we just stopped right now and said, let's praise God for who he is. Tell him about his attributes and his qualities. Could you do that for five minutes? Folks, if you can't, you don't know him. Thankfulness. Thanking God for five minutes. Are there five five minutes that you could find things to thank God for, the things he's done for you? Could you do that for five? Could you thank him for five minutes? Then you have the difficult ones. Then there's the the waiting that those five minutes seem like an eternity, honestly. Waiting for five minutes, trying to stay focused on waiting on him for five minutes and listening. There's another five minutes, listening to the Lord for five minutes. That's hard. That's difficult. Then there's intercession. Then there's petition. There's scripture praying. There's meditation. There's all kinds of things. I committed to doing this, and I found myself as a teenager praying an hour a day. And all it did was change my life radically. Suddenly, God called me to full-time work for him. And I knew it unquestionably because I was spending time in his presence and I could hear him because I'm expecting an answer and he's speaking to me. And as a result of that, he called me to go and serve overseas. Only I'm convinced because I committed to seeking him with my heart. I can't even say with my whole heart because I don't even know that it was, but it was all I was able to give him at the time, and he honored it. Don't think there's a shortcut, folks. There's not. If you're not spending time in his presence, if you're not spending time in his word, you're not going to hear him. You're not going to know him. Any married people here? Some of you who didn't raise your hands and are married. Uh -uh. All right, thank you. I saw you, Samuel. Anybody who wants to be married one day, come on. There we go. Okay. You can't spend, you can't get to know your spouse unless you spend time with them. Meet a girl. She's a beautiful girl. You know, I've got a plan. Uh, a lot of people spend time together and go out on dates, but I've got this book. Uh, 
five steps for building a close relationship with you. And I'm just going to read this and we're going to develop this nice relationship. So uh, see you later. Yeah, see you later is right. Because you're not serious about that relationship. How deep do you want to go? If you abide in him, then you're truly his disciple. How free do you want to be? What does he say next? And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom is offered, but we've got to walk in it. And how much favor do you want from God? Folks, I honestly believe I can't take two steps without God's favor. Because I inevitably make bad choices. I would like to say that from the time I was a teenager until now, I've kept up with that hour a day in prayer. I have not. It's only recently that God has sparked that in me again to be a prayer. Because I sense a desperation in my own personal life. And because I sense that we're getting close to the end. Maybe it's just because I'm old. All old people say that Jesus is coming soon. You know that, don't you? He's coming real soon. Because you're old, that's why. Yes, of course it feels sooner. I'm young. I got. It's sooner than it's ever been. Guys, we're either in the river and moving with him, or we're on the side watching what's happening. If there were a fourth question, it would be this. What price am I willing to pay to live in the power of God's grace? Because there is a price to pay. There's a price to pay with our lives. There's a price to pay with our hearts and our commitment to him. And as the worship team's coming and getting ready to lead us in the last couple of songs, I want to pray. For us. I don't want to pray for you. I want to pray for us. Because guess what, folks? We're in this together. And we need each other. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we come to you as desperate people. We need you, God. Those of us who are here today who are called your sons and daughters have received your grace. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. Thank you for doing what we could never do. Thank you for doing what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. Thank you for saving us. But Lord, we want what James says is that more grace. I want for this, for the people gathered here, for the people listening today, for extra favor from you, God, for extra favor from you. But help us to be a Daniel. Help us to be a Jonathan. Help us to be a Joseph. Help us to be these men and women of God whose hearts were fully devoted to you. God, I don't need anything more than a mirror to know that I am unable to do this on my own. I have fallen too many times and too deeply to begin to think that I can do this on my own. Father, draw us to you. Draw us to you and give us a heart to seek you and to draw near to you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jim.